Good morning, church. How is everybody today? Y'all doing well? Good morning to those of you joining us online. Y'all have a good Thanksgiving? Yes? All right, good. I hope everybody had a great opportunity to rest and to uh, get plenty of opportunities to hang out with family, build memories, and eat way too much turkey. I know I did that, um, which was such a, a joyful experience. And Hope you all had one as well. So not too long ago, uh, we decided to put a zip line up in our front yard. And it was kind of a random occurrence, but it was, it was pretty fun. It's, it's been a long time coming because we've had this zip line literally for maybe four or five years. I don't know. It was given to us a while back. And, and we never really knew where to put it because zip lines, I think, you know, obviously make a little bit more sense in the backyard. And uh, we just don't have two strong enough trees in the backyard. We have one strong one, we don't have two. And so we never really knew where to put it. And, and I guess as the pandemic unfolded, the front yard really became kind of a play space and just a, a place where we always would go and hang out and the kids would be out there all the time. And so we just kind of got used to toys and all those other things being out there. And so uh, I, I guess as we were out there about a month ago, Annabelle, was talking to me about this zip line. And she's like, where, where, where are we gonna put it up? We need to find a place for it. And I just said, well, you know, really the only place we could put it are these two trees in our front yard. But in my mind, you know, the front yard wasn't an option. But Jennifer, overhearing this conversation, kind of commented and said, well, I wouldn't mind if we had a zip line in the front yard. And that was all the approval we needed. And so within moments, we got the zip line out, we put it up in the front yard and, and attached it to the two trees and became, it was an instant success, right? It was an instant winner for, for the older kids, for the kids in the neighborhood. Everybody was coming over and they were going down the zip line back and forth in our front yard uh, time and time again. And we, we had these steps kind of uh, fastened to the back of the tree and then a little platform that you could stand on within the tree so that you could launch yourself out on the zip line. Uh, but for the younger kids who had difficulty maneuvering up those steps in the tree. We, we just went ahead and put the ladder out so they could climb up to the top of the ladder and launch themselves down the zip line. And it was so much fun. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was the reason that my kids were late that next Sunday <laughs> as they whispered to me in the pew, we were doing the zip line. So, so it, was a, it was a great success. It was instant winter. Now, what was fun for me was to observe Wu's reaction to the new zip line. Because for those of you that are familiar with a younger child, they typically really always are trying to do what the older children are doing. And that's definitely true for Wu. Like he watches James and Annabelle play sports, activities, art, you name it. He wants to do it as well. But in the case of the zip line, I noticed that first day he was just observing, right? He just was almost like in stillness. We just watched these kids go back and forth, up and down this zip line. And, and looking back, I realize now that it, it kind of created some hesitation and some fear in the kid. But I guess he, he mustered up enough courage because that first night he came up to me and he kind of gestured in motion that he wanted to give it a shot. And, and so we got him ready. We could put a little helmet on him and we took him over to the ladder and he started climbing up the ladder. And he was probably two or three steps away from the top of the ladder when, when he just stopped and, and kind of got a little bit more hesitant. And, and I, I coached him. I was right there with him and I kind of encouraged him to go ahead and take the next few steps. But I could just see that the fear was setting in. And by the time he got to the top of that ladder, man, he just hugged that tree like it was a long lost puppy, man. I mean, he was like death grip on that tree. And, and I, I was trying to get him to turn around. I was like, you know, I'm right here. I've got you, giving him all those assurances. And he would not let go. And I realized like, even if, I, even if he didn't want to do the zip line, just getting him back down from the ladder, I was gonna have to like physically pull him off the tree. And so that's what I did. I, I like 
physically started to pull him back. He finally let go of the tree, and I turned him around, and this is where, like, supreme third child parenting kicked in. Right? Like, if it had been my first child, I probably would have, like, brought him in and be like, it's okay. Like, I'm not going to make you do it. You're safe. And taking him back down the ladder. Third child, I was like, you're doing the zip line. All right? You know, so, like, I, I turned him around, and, and I got the zip line on him, and he has, like, a little seat that he can hold on to. So I set him on the seat, and he grabbed that rope, you know, like, like he put the death grip on that one. And, and you, because we've got this video, I forgot to bring it, but it's a great video. You can see the fear just like covering his face. And, and I've got him, and I don't even like push him, I don't even launch him. I, I literally keep my hand on his back and I hold the zip line and I walk with him all the way down the zip line. And the video is great because you can see his face go from sheer terror to sheer joy. And it's, it's just this awesome transformation as the smile begins to break across his face and then laughter. And now, you know, he's not hesitant really at all to come up and ask for a ride on the zip line. And, and it's a story that to me really kind of is indicative of so many of those stories that parents face whenever they see their child confronted with a task that, that kind of has them fearful, right? You think about those children that, that jump off the diving board for the first time. Right? And, and, and what do you see the parents do? They, they wade out into the deep end and they lift their arms up and tread water and like, I'm, I'm here, I'll catch you, I'm, I'm right here. Right? That, that's the word of assurance that parents typically go to whenever they see their children afraid. I'm right here, I'm with you, right? And, and to me, the story of what I saw go through, my, my, what I saw my son go through at the zip line is, is a great metaphor for life, isn't it? that a lot of times the brokenness of this world or the challenges of this world can, can paralyze us by fear, by hurt, by pain, by anxiousness, by, by the unknown, whatever it is, and we find something that we think is gonna give us comfort, and man, we hold onto it tightly. And, and what the gospel does is it comes alongside us and says, no, I'm right here with you. Let go and trust me. And when we truly embrace that promise and we see God's hands upon us and he, and he repositions us to focus on the things that he wants us to do, we see that he actually walks with us. We, we take that leap of faith and it truly transforms our life from a life of anxiety and, and uncertainty and fear into a life of joy. And, and that's really what we see in Advent. And, and that is really kind of gonna be what dictates our conversations for the next few weeks in this Advent series is for us to really look at the essence of the gospel, the essence of this promise that is, I am with you, and how powerful that can really become and how transforming it is for our lives. And so for the next several weeks, we're not going to camp out just in one chapter or one book. We're going to take a mixture of passages from Old and New Testament stories that allow us to really focus in on this promise of, of God being with us, right? That is, that is the essence of Advent, Emmanuel, God is with us. And so we'll use that as a guide and we'll use that as our theme. And today we're going to start in the Old Testament. So grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis 28. And as I always say, if you don't have a Bible, be it at home or here, please let us know. We'd be happy to gift one to you and make sure that you have one of those uh, uh, in the future. But, but when we turn to the, New Te or to the Old Testament, I I'm not sure what stories and, and what characters typically come to mind for you. Uh, I think a lot of times when we consider the Old Testament, we often gravitate to some of the more well-known stories and names like Abraham and Noah and Moses and David, right? The, the, the patriarchs, these, 
these folks that have very well-known stories that kind of guide and govern so much of the Old Testament narrative. And then we kind of have a second tier of names that maybe our, our brains think of after that first list where we think, oh yeah, but Joseph and his coat of many colors and how he was sold into slavery or Daniel and the lion's den, right? We kind of have this, this next tier of recognition. And, and I would imagine that it's typically that second or maybe even third tier that our brains would start to think of Jacob, which is interesting to me that Jacob doesn't have a little bit more notoriety and familiarity when we think about the Old Testament. Because as you all know, Jacob, he has his name changed to Israel after he wrestles with God, right? So he has, he has 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so whenever we talk about the nation of Israel, we're talking about Jacob. Right? I mean, so it is, it is a critical and essential part of the Old Testament narrative. And it's going to be Jacob's story that we pick up on for today's passage. But before we read this particular excerpt of this story today in Genesis 28, I want to give you some context. It's important for us to know some of the things that Jacob has gone through in the narrative that has kind of dictated his story and his family. And, and we see it early, right? Even in Genesis 25, it says that, that Jacob and his brother jostled with each other in their mother's womb, right? So there was this, this inherent animosity and conflict that existed between Jacob and his brother Esau, right? And when they were born, Esau was born first, and then Jacob was, was, was found clutching his heel, right? And all these things kind of set this tone for this animosity and this tension that was going to exist within the home. And, and we see it begin to materialize in a lot of different ways. We see that the parents are even described as having favorites, right? That Rebecca loved Jacob more and Isaac loved Esau more, which is like parenting 101, right? You don't love one child more than another, but it was, it was even creating some dissension there. You, you see these stories of manipulation and deceit and, and some poor choices when, when Esau comes back at one point and he's famished and he's wanting food. Uh, in his desperation, he's willing to sell his birthright to his brother who manipulates him in that situation to get his birthright from him. And, and so there are these constant moments of conflict and it kind of all comes to a head when, when actually Rebecca decides to help Jacob deceive his father, right? To deceive Isaac into giving him his blessing. And so he, she, she brings him aside and she prepares a meal just the way that Isaac would like it. She gets Jacob to dress up like her like her brother so that, uh, or like his brother because she knew that Isaac couldn't see very well and Jacob goes in and pretends to be Esau and essentially steals the blessing that was intended for his brother. Now, that's hard for us to like empathize with or correlate to because we don't really do that. It's not a customer practice that we're used to, but it was clearly a significant breach of trust and division in the family because what we see is that Esau, when he discovers this, he, he just, he's so frustrated, so hurt by this, so angry by this, he begins to plot to kill his brother. So let that set in. All right, so like the family is pulled apart in every direction to the point where a brother truly wants to kill his own brother. All right, so side note for a second. Um, God works through broken families. So like if, you, if you're a part of a family that is broken, and many of us are, and you've experienced pain and animosity and hostility and division and all that sort of brokenness, I, I want you to know that none of that brokenness precludes God from being present in your life. Right? That's, that's a side note. But, but part of what we need to see is that that's exactly Jacob's story. And, and that's kind of where we're starting to pick this story up. Now, another 
bit of context to this is that we also learn that one of the things that had really given grief to, to Rebekah and to Isaac was the fact that Esau had married Hittite women, right? And so they're, they're, they're really uh, upset about that. There's moments where it says Rebekah was, was grieved over this and even told Jacob that if he married a Hittite woman, she wouldn't have a life that was worth living, all right? So another side note, we see that the whole mother-in-law, daughter-in-law conflict goes all the way back to Genesis 28, right? It's, it's an ancient practice, y'all. So, so the point being, though, as a result of this agony and a result of this disdain for these, these wives that, that Esau has married, they send Jacob out, not only for his own protection and refuge from his brother, but so that he can find a wife from their own people to go back to, to Rebekah's country, to, to, to Laban, and to find a wife that was of their own people. And so they send Jacob out, and it's in this context, right, with, with, a, with a family at odds, with a brother that wants to kill him, where he's being sent out on this dangerous journey in isolation in despair that we pick up the story in Genesis 28. So we're going to start in verses 10 and read 10 through 15 to begin our time. He says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And there above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. All right, we're going to stop there for a moment. So this is a, a part of Jacob's story that can be well-known. We often refer to it as, as Jacob's ladder, right? This, this mysterious image of this ladder from heaven to earth with angels ascending and descending on and at the Lord at the top who, who makes this declaration. So it's a very mysterious and miraculous dream, but, but really the point of it is that it's here in this moment in, in uh, Jacob's personal exile that we find this Abrahamic covenant, this Abrahamic blessing now being extended to Jacob himself, just as it was his father, Isaac. In fact, earlier in the chapter, Isaac had said that he had hoped that, that Jacob would receive this blessing that was given to Abraham, right? And so when you think about earlier chapters in Genesis, it was the same sort of blessing. And, and you typically find two dominant characteristics of this blessing. Really, it's land and life, right? And, and so, so if you think about it in the terms of that life was typically understood to be something that pointed to offspring and being fruitful, having many descendants, right? Even, even in the story of creation, it's be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, that the understanding of a fruitful life and a full life was often look at, looked at through the lens of, of offspring, right? And so here we have Jacob receiving that same blessing that his, his descendants will be like the dust of the earth, that it will cover from east to west and north to south. This, this is a, a sign of a strong and full and fruitful life. Now, you also see the element of land, right? That I'm going to give you and your descendants the land upon which you are now lying. This was the same promise that was given to Abraham. Go to the land that I will show you. And, and what you begin to see is that the culmination of those two promises, of those two blessings, result in a nation, right? A nation that will be a blessing to many, many nations, that God is forming for himself a people, Right? And so this was kind of the, the anchor of this blessing, and it's now being extended down to Jacob in this dream. So it's a very significant moment. 
Now, you and I, we have the benefit of being on this side of the cross to understand that the fruition and the ultimate fulfilling of this blessing is really found in Christ, right? That the life that we long for is not a life of numerous descendants and a and a heritage that will outlive us, but the life that we long for is the everlasting life that we find in Christ, right? That the land that we long for, the the nation that we long to be a part of is not some earthly nation, but an eternal heavenly kingdom, right? The kingdom of God that Jesus himself has ushered in, right? And so we see that life and land find their ultimate fulfillment and everlasting life and eternal kingdom initiated by Jesus Christ, right? But, but those things become the anchor of God's promise, right? A promise of, of life and kingdom. And they were the anchor for this family as well. This blessing was the anchor for this family. And yet I can't help but imagine that when Jacob hears this blessing and begins to process the significance of it, I can't help but wonder if he had some level of skepticism when he tried to process whether or not it was truly for him. You know, even Abraham was somewhat skeptical, right? Now, not, not entirely, but initially he thinks to himself, well, how is this possible? I'm old, so is Sarah. How are we gonna have all these descendants and these children that you speak of, right? But then it tells us that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But I don't think it would be far-fetched for us to assume that Jacob in a similar situation would be thinking, here I am, estranged from my family, In my own personal exile on this difficult journey, I've got a stone for a pillow, right? I have no wife, no kids. Are are you sure that this is for me? And I can't help but wonder how many times that's true for each of us as well, right? That we hear the blessings of God time and time again, the blessings of what this gospel can bring, the fruit of the Spirit, the hope and the promises of, of a fruitful and joyful life, of being part of a holy nation, a royal priesthood, all these these wonderful things, and we come into church, and we go to Bible studies, and we hear podcasts and songs, and that sounds great, but I don't know if it's really true for me. I don't feel blessed. I I don't feel the benefit of these promises, and we often respond to these blessings and this hope with that question of skepticism. I think it isn't unreasonable to assume Jacob did so as well, just like you and I might today. And it's there in the heart of that skepticism that we find the fullness of God's assurance. The same assurance that he gives to Jacob, he gives to us today. And what is that assurance? What is that promise? I am with you. What a significant word. What a powerful reminder. Here's Jacob in the middle of this struggling and difficult season, in this miraculous, unexpected moment, he hears this promise that affirms this blessing, I am with you. And and that's the promise that we want to dive deeper into this morning. What does that mean? What does that look like to experience God's presence with us? You know, it's important to make sure we consider not just the promise that God is with us, but how God is with us. How how does it begin to materialize itself? And I think this passage does a great job expounding upon what it looks like. But it's important for us to consider because presence doesn't always equate to a good thing, right? You've seen the distracted parent. You've seen those moments where 
these kids come running up to their parents and they're like, mommy, 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 watch me do this. Daddy, daddy, can you come do this? And you see the parents where they're like, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, just a second. That's really good, sweetie. You know, and they're just totally not there. So you can be present and unattentive, right? You, you can be present, but not really in a meaningful way. And so it's not enough for us just to say, hey, good news, God's with you today. I think it's important for us to say, how is he with you? And this passage gives us, in my estimation, at least three ways to modify or, or expound upon what God's presence being with us looks like. Right? The first one that he tells us here is that that, that means I'm going to watch over you. And he says that I'm with you and I will watch over you. The way to, to interpret and translate that root means he's giving careful consideration. Right? Another way to translate it is often like to guard or protect. So part of what it is, is painting a picture of is that God is fully attentive to our needs. He's attuned to, to what it is that we need in those moments. He is watching over us with diligent care, mindful of all the things that we're facing and all the things that we need. What a, what a beautiful reminder. But the challenge is, is that in many situations, it doesn't feel that way. Right? In, in many seasons and at many moments in life, it feels almost like the opposite, that God has been neglectful or distant, that he's not paying attention to our needs. I think we've all been in moments like that. And so the question becomes, how do we reconcile those moments where it feels like God is not paying attention and he isn't watching over us? How do we handle those emotions and those feelings with this promise that we see repeatedly in Scripture that he is watching over us, that he is guarding us? and protecting us. I think there are a couple of things to keep in mind in order to reconcile that. Here's the first one. What we have to never lose sight of is that God knows our needs better than we do. And that's, that's easy to say, but hard to believe. He knows what we need better than we do. Right? A lot of times we can get fixated on a moment, right? If God would just do this, if I could only experience that, if you could just heal me of this, then everything would be better. Then I would really begin to experience the blessings and the hope and the joy and all these things that God has. I need to be set free from these things. And that's what we want because we think we know what we need. But what we have to embrace is the reality that God knows what we need more than we do. Right? A great illustration to this that I came across in a book written by Francis Chan is he equated it to that child that wakes up at in the middle of the night, like 11 o'clock, and comes into the living room and is like, Mom, Dad, I want some sugar. Right? Give me a soda. Give me a slice of cake, whatever it is. Right? I need it or I can't fall asleep. And a, a responsible parent will look at that child and go, no, what you need is sleep. Right? Because a parent knows better than a child. Right? And, and that's an important reminder for us to keep in, in our hearts and in our minds when we go through things in life is that a lot of times our impulses towards what we need and what we're asking God for might in fact be things that he's going, no, I, I'm not gonna set you free from that yet because I'm working something in you. I, I know what you need, not you, right? And if you think about the maturation process that we see in a child that responds to a parent that is trying to speak to their needs more than, than what they're probably aware of, there's a lot of different reactions that a child might give to demonstrate the maturity and their ability to trust in their parents watching over and protecting and, and meeting their needs, right? So like for the younger child, when they're told, no, you can't have sugar at bed, what are they going to do? They're going to throw a fit, 
right? That's where you see the tantrum. That's where you see the kicking, the screaming, the, the crying, and all the upset stuff, and they're just gonna to really react in a tantrum towards that response. But then when they get a little bit older, kind of the response that I see, at least this is kind of where my older children are right now, is, hey, I don't agree with you, but I'm gonna comply, right? It's like, fine, but I, don't, I really think I should have a soda because I hadn't had one yesterday. You know what I mean? Like there's all this rationale and this bargaining back and forth, and so they don't really grasp it, but they're gonna comply because they know they kind of have to. Then you have other seasons of, of childhood where you just kind of rebel against what your parents have told you anyway, and you're gonna do it with or without their knowledge, and typically what happens there is you discover it is actually unfulfilling, right? It didn't meet your needs the way that you thought it would. But, but the mature response that, that all parents look forward to, to having, although I don't know that it always happens, is the child that's gonna understand that even if they don't fully comprehend the why, they know that their parents have their best interest at heart. And so they agree. And they trust it. And faith. Right? Isn't that how we often react to God? Sometimes when we aren't getting our needs met based on our determination of what needs are, we might kick and scream and cry and moan that God is unfair and we'll just continue to demand, demand, demand. Maybe we'll comply but with reluctance. And, and we'll still argue with God and, and be frustrated with God because it feels so unfair. Or maybe we'll just rebel against him and try to go find the very thing that we want only to discover that it leaves us completely unfulfilled. And what we need to really all aspire to is that posture of maturity where our faith says, even if I don't understand this, I trust you because I know you're a God that watches over me. You know my needs better than I do. And so I'm gonna trust it. That's the posture of faith that we need to aspire to. And part of the reason we can do that, and part of the reason I think it's important is another reminder that we can trust these things is that a lot of times we, we assume that what we need is something that's easier, something that's more comfortable, right? So we, we equate our needs with, with ease a lot of times. If we could just make this easier on me, take away the suffering, take away the pain, take away the hardship, then, then life would be better. When in reality, part of what we have to recognize is that it's the hard things that are meaningful, right? It's the difficult things that produce character and perseverance and strength and resolve. These are the things that God often is trying to foster in us. And so the adversity and the hardship is actually making us stronger, right? It's that analogy that I'm sure many of you have heard with the butterfly and the cocoon. You heard that before? Right, like what they've discovered is that when a butterfly is breaking out of the cocoon, it's actually strengthening its muscles that it needs to fly. And so if you were to see a butterfly breaking out of a cocoon and decide, oh, I'm gonna go help it, it's a cute little butterfly, and take away the cocoon for it, you know what you're doing? You're actually killing the butterfly because then it, then it won't be able to fly. It, it needs the struggle in order to fly in a way that, that God has designed it to. And so part of what we need to do to trust that God is meeting our needs is not just equate needs with ease, but to understand that adversity is actually strengthening us and, and growing us in a way that hopefully allows us to flourish and fly in a way that God has designed and desires. But here's the other side to this coin, right? As, as easy as it is to possibly say, you know what, just trust God. He's got your needs in mind. Don't worry about it. Just embrace the hard things. There is a flip side of this coin that I think we should also mention today to understand that God is with us and is watching over us is to recognize that sometimes we just live in a broken world, right? And, and what we endure 
and what we're victims of and what we suffer through is nothing more than living in brokenness. Right? It's not part of God's plan. It's not part of his desire. Right now, he can work good from it. He will be with you in it. But, but part of what we need to recognize is that this world is broken. And a lot of times, we, we are reminded of that in very harsh ways, very difficult ways. Right? And so what it should do is foster within us this prayer that says, Lord Jesus, come quickly because I want that everlasting life and that eternal kingdom that you've pointed us to, and it's not here, right? And we should long for that, but here's where the beauty of it, of this promise, can continue to find us even in that perspective of being victims of a broken world is to see that even there, he doesn't leave us alone. He says, I know it's broken, and I know it's hard, but I'm with you. I haven't asked you to walk through it alone, I haven't asked you to to solve it on your own. I'm with you every step of the way. I'm crying with you. I'm weeping with you. I'm I'm suffering with you and for you. So even there, on that side of the coin, we find the beauty of God's watchful presence over us. So he's with us because he watches over us. He's caring and tending to our every need. The second thing that we see that modifies his presence here is that he will bring us back to the land. Did you see that? He tells Jacob, he says, I'm going to bring you back to this very land where you're lying right now, you and your descendants, right? I'm going to bring you back here. And the reason I love that is because it's a reminder to Jacob, hey, you're on a journey, but it has a destination. There's a point. There's a purpose. You you are not just roaming aimlessly trying to find significance, trying to find meaning, trying to find understanding. No, there's a destination in mind, and I'm going to bring you back to this place because that's my plan for you. That's where this blessing and this promise finds its fruition. And so part of what we need to recognize is that the goodness of this promise of God's presence being with us is that it's not just that he's with us, he's leading us. We're not on some aimless journey through existence. There's a point. There's a destination in mind. There, there's a journey that he has set us on, a course, a path that he is navigating. He is writing out this story. We are not the writers and the authors of our own story. He is. And so part of what we need to embrace is to, is to resist that tendency to take control and, and write it out the way that we want it and craft it the way that we want it and to recognize that God's plan is greater than our own. And when we truly see that he's with us and he's watching over us, we also discover he's leading us. That the journey that we're on is a journey of following, following Jesus, following Christ, following these promises of God, that he is with us so that he can lead us. So I love that assurance that he gives to Jacob. Don't, don't lose sight of this. Yes, you're in exile now. Yes, you're on a journey, but, but I'm gonna bring you back, right? It will have an end. It will have an ultimate resolution. And that's part of what we, we talked about last week, right? That the anticipation of, of that ultimate reward that the ultimate reward is being together with Christ for forever, and that that's kind of the the end goal for us in these promises. And so we never lose sight of the fact that this journey has a purpose, it has a meaning, and our job is to endure and take it one step at a time as he leads us. Which then takes us to this third modification that he includes in this particular passage, which is not just that I'm gonna watch over you and I'm gonna bring you back, but I'm gonna be with you. I'm never going to leave you. That, that last phrase there speaks to the permanence of this promise. 
right, that, that this is going to be something that God does. I'm, I'm not gonna leave you until these promises are fulfilled, every single one of them, right? God is saying, I'm permanently walking on this journey with you. Again, I, I think about these situations as a parent where my kids will come up to me and maybe I'm in the middle of work because we're having to work a lot from home nowadays and working remotely, or, or maybe I've got a task that I'm trying to accomplish in the house and they'll come up and ask to, to play a game or to help them with something. And, and a lot of times I'll find myself saying, yeah, I can do that, but only for a few minutes. Right? I, 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 get, I can give you about 20 minutes, 30 minutes, then I got to go to a meeting, I got to go do this. And, and my presence with them in that moment is kind of conditional and temporary. Right? I, I can be with you, but only for this amount of time. And I love that what we see in the scriptures is that when God says, I'm with you, it's not conditional, it's not temporary, it's forever. He says, I will never leave you. I love that. Right? I, I'm not leaving you. It, it reminds me of these other moments in scripture where God says something similar to folks like Joshua and Moses as they're wandering through the wilderness and venturing into the promised land where he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. When you truly begin to understand that, when you truly begin to embrace that, what does it foster? What does God want it to foster? What does he say to, to folks like Joshua and Moses? It's not here, but it's in so many of these other stories. If you understand that I'm not leaving you, then what should result in you is that you would be strong and courageous. And that's exactly who we should be. No matter what season we're in, no matter what we're facing, no matter what challenge or hardship or struggle, no matter what life might bring to us, when people look in on our lives, they should see fearless people who encounter and embrace those moments with strength and courage rather than fear and hesitation. So what do people see in you, right? What, what do you demonstrate with your life? Is your life facing the, the journeys and the chapters that lie ahead with a certain timidity and a certain apprehension and fear? Or are you demonstrating that strength and that courage because you know God will never leave you, right? When we become those, those strong, courageous people, we venture into this life in such a way that even if we, we finally loosen our grip on those comforts, on that 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 tree that we hold so tightly to and we begin to look forward to what God is asking us to do and we take that leap of faith, that strength and that courage to take that leap is what ultimately puts us on that path to have that fear transformed into joy. And that's what we all desire and that's what we see God trying to reassure Jacob of here in this story. Now here, here's how I wanna close though. With, with all those assurances in mind, Here's what I love about what Jacob says. Let's, let's wrap up by looking at verse 16 and 17. It says, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. What a profound statement, right? It, it, part of what we're seeing here is that Jacob recognizes now that God is with him, that, that the Lord is in this place. But I love that statement, I, I had no idea. I was completely unaware of it, right? It, it gives me that, that image of my son holding on to that tree and I'm sitting there, I'm talking to him, I've got my hands on him saying, I'm here, I'm with you, 
and yet he can't seem to hear my voice or even feel my hands upon him trying to give him that reassurance. How many times are we going through something in life and God is telling us time and time again, I'm with you, I'm here with you, but we don't hear his words and we don't feel his touch. We're completely unaware of it. And so we miss out on these assurances that are so beautifully laid out in this dream because we're clinging so tightly to something else that we think will give us comfort. How, how do we guard against that? I think part of what probably played a factor here with Jacob was his expectations, right, of, of where God would show up, of how God might show up, of when God might show up. Clearly, he wasn't expecting God here, right? Not in the middle of exile, not in the middle of, of this estranged, broken family, not in the middle of this fear, in the middle of this journey where he's, he's laying out in the middle of nowhere using a stone for a pillow, like, like not here. This isn't where God reveals himself. So he was completely unaware. He wasn't expecting it. Where do you expect God to show up? How do you expect God to show up? When do you expect God to show up? A lot of times I feel like we we kind of put God in a box, right? We expect him at church, expect him at Bible studies, and when we're singing songs, and we're reading our Bible, and we kind of curate this really nice picture. And, and we expect it to feel very emotional. We, we have all these ideas of how God might show up. And then we find ourselves in, in environments that are not anything like what we painted. And as a result, we find ourselves clinging to something completely different and we're unaware of the many times that he's trying to tell us, I'm here, I'm with you. Because our expectations are off. I remember being on a trip to India several years ago. It was when I was serving as a missions pastor at my former church. And we had a team there uh, kind of going through these different ministries in the streets of Delhi. And uh, we had gotten to a point in our trip where we divided up and kind of broke up into smaller groups to see different areas of this ministry, and, and the three or four people that I was with, we were taken to this slum area of Delhi. And uh, the, the slums in Delhi are just riddled with poverty in, in ways that are really hard to describe. And I remember walking through these paths of this slum area, just being hit in the face with poverty. They had told us before that we had arrived that it was an area in a neighborhood, Islam in particular, that had been recently riddled with violence and abuse. And so there was kind of the threat of, of those concerns for our safety that were kind of in the back of our minds. And you're walking through not just the poverty and the concerns of violence and abuse, but also just idolatry all over the place. And, and it was just a dark environment. And yet as we made our way through, we found ourselves in this small little room, this small little hut, I guess you could say, and three or four other people from the neighborhood joined us and sat together as we listened to this local pastor talk to these other individuals in their native language about Jesus. And I remember just watching it all unfold and thinking to myself, wow, even here, God is in this place, right? And in the midst of poverty, in the midst of abuse and violence 
in the midst of idolatry, even there, God was with us. And how remarkable that was. I mean, it was remarkable to me on a, on a literal level, right, that there's really no corner of the earth that God can't reach or touch. But I share it with you today almost metaphorically, right, that a lot of times we create these expectations of when and where and how God's going to show up in these nice little curated cathedrals and these picturesque moments of life, when in reality it's typically in the shadows. It's often in the valleys. It's often in the midst of of the hard things and the difficult things, the unexpected places where God really reveals himself. And so we should always be looking for the unexpected, mindful that at any moment, in any season, in any way, God can and will reveal himself. Is that not the message of Advent? That when this hope of a new king being born, when people were looking in places of royalty and for public announcements in some unknown town and a nondescript stable, a newborn baby gave cries in a manger. And don't you know those shepherds gathered around and thought in some way to themselves, God is in this place and I was completely unaware of it. And it's a story that reminds us to empty our own hearts and our minds of these expectations that limit us from seeing the beauty of this promise, to let go of that tree that we think is giving us comfort and to trust and see that our God's voice and his touch is upon us. He will never leave us. He watches over us. He is leading us and he will never leave us or forsake us. And if we can trust that and take that leap of faith, I assure you, church, we will be those strong and courageous people that experience a life that has the thrill of having everything within our existence being transformed from fear to joy. And those are the sorts of people we want to be in the life that we want to live. So let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we thank you for this promise this opportunity, Father, on so many levels to know that you are with us, that you will never leave us. Got to know that you watch over us and meet our needs, to know that you are able to, to lead us in such a way that it helps us to trust not where we want to go, but where you are leading. And so, Father, for any of us that are here today that, that perhaps are struggling with, with seeing you and understanding your presence, understanding the hope of this promise, God, I pray that for whatever reason that, that might be distracting us from seeing the fullness of these promises, God, that you would empty us from those distractions and help us to see once again that you are with us every step of the way. Father, that for those who receive the hope of the good news, that for those who receive the hope of Jesus, this Emmanuel, that you, Father, have, have left the comforts of heaven and took on flesh that you would dwell among us, God, that if we receive you into our hearts, that we would be able to have that assurance of your presence both today and forevermore. And so, Father, as we meet the, the chapters of our lives with strength and with courage and with boldness, Father, we would, we would be able to declare not that it was by our own merit, not that it was by our own resolve our own abilities, but it was simply by Christ in us. And so we follow Jesus 
from the manger to the cross to the empty tomb. For he is our hope, he is our redeemer, he is the constant reminder of this amazing promise that you are with us. And so we sing of his praise and his glory both today and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.